Lee. Yes, Adam. I think I need help. Well, I'm in at last. I continue. Oh, okay. So I thought this conversation was going to go in a different direction. What do you think I'm about to tell you? <laughs> I am still, still unscratchably in the Curtis Enfeld rut. I can't get oh out my of it. God, you've been yep. in it for quite a while. Have you read everything she's ever written? Just yet? about. I'm yeah, getting there. So. It'll be over soon. Um, I just because I find that her books are immediately engaging, very well written. There's a, a, a plot that I jump aboard. It's a her books I find um, thought provoking and entertaining, and I have such a high success rate that I'm just like, oh yeah, I know you'll be good. Yeah, which is a great thing in a writer. Like, I get, I feel like that about Anne Tyler. Yep, and Anne Wright. The other Anne's, all the Anne's. No, I don't like Anne Patchett. We've oh, had this conversation oh, before. God. All right. Well, I can't agree with you there. I refuse to be thrown off course by your <laughs> Anne bombs. I'm feeling a bit mischievous today. I'm you sorry. are, actually. Pain in the ass is what <laughs> I'd describe it as, but anyway. Uh, so Sisterland is about the fractious relationship between these two sisters. One of them is kind of like got a kooky second sight thing, like she's a bit... <sighs> Uh-huh. And the other one. One of them, see, one of them sees auras, coloured auras around me. 100%. Oh, joking? And early in the piece, and the sister did also have this same gift but has just absolutely boxed it up and said, I'm sorry, it's bullshit and it's more trouble than it's worth. So, and she's got married and had a child and then had another child. She's very kind of caught up in domestic life and having little kids and her sister, who is the clairvoyant, is a bit like, oh, your kids are a bit boring. You're a bit boring now you've got kids. Um, and one day, and so the the married sister finds her a little bit embarrassing, a little bit out there, and one day the um, clairvoyant sister predicts that there's going to be an earthquake. And all of a sudden she's all over TV with this prediction oh. and – the other sister's just like, God, oh, this is so yeah. goddamn embarrassing. <laughs> and what it really unspools into is this amazingly <clears throat> full of loathing and affection and history and resentment relationship between these two sisters. Oh, that sounds great. And it's called Sisterland, which yep. is the sign that they used to have on their door when they were growing up. Oh. And it turns out that they're – parenting arrangement when they were kids was very, very unusual. Their mother was very unwell just after they were about eight or nine, didn't get out of bed anymore, and so the sisters took over cooking and pretended to their dad that their mum had cooked dinner, but actually it was always them, you know. Mm. Like So it's – anyway, Sounds I'm sorry, it's another good. hit. Well, it's I, of another course, hit. want to know, did the earthquake happen? But don't tell me because that's what's going to drive me into reading the book. Uh, yeah, and it is very um, pacey plot-wise. Okay. So um, I think you'll like it. Um, Screw you, Sales. You're going to like this. <laughs> I read a book of essays called The Details by Tegan Bennett Daylight. Oh, okay. Mm. I have not read that, but I've read about it. Um, it's really good. It's really good. Um, the Lots of it stuck with me. Um, the most famous – there's an essay in it that opens it. Um, I think it's called Vagina or something like that. Okay. It's – Fairly specific then. It's about her vagina. Okay, <laughs> great. Does what it says on the tin then. <laughs> Imagine if you like picked it up. Oh, I'm definitely reading that, and then it turned out to be about her cloaca, or maybe <laughs> like index finger or something. <laughs> well, this is rubbish. This is not what it said it would be at all. 
Sorry, um, just trying to throw you off here. It's basically about just – I don't even know how to explain it now that you've done that. Oh, this is going to make great podcasts. It's listening. about the aftermath of childbirth and just problems. Oh, great. This, I've completely ruined this, haven't I, because this is obviously an entirely – Serious essay that you that anyway went. that for some reason that essay grabbed me less than the subsequent essays. One of the subsequent essays which I really enjoyed is about her trying to teach creative writing at a university today, oh, okay. where most young people come in and she says only the barest handful of people have really read any novels of significance. Oh, that's depressing. The kids that you would consider to be decent readers have read Twilight and Harry Potter <gasps> and stuff like that, yeah. and then the vast bulk of people don't read anything other than their Instagram or their Facebook. Okay. And so she talks about... Um, can I just about, clarify, my intake of breath there was more about Twilight than Harry Potter. Um, right. And I also encourage children to read both of those books because, you know, read anything, read read anything right? Yeah. So um, I'm sorry if I implied there that those were... That you're a massive yep. literary snob. Um, so she... Yep. Next you'll be telling people to not read Sydney Sheldon and Danielle Steele. <laughs> Uh, so she it's what's made talks you what you are. So initially, she starts teaching, and she's um, appalled by this. And you've got to go away, and you've got to read blah blah blah. But then she ha- realizes, well, it's just different now. That's how things are. And then she sort of has to adapt. But it's I found found her insights into all of that really interesting. There's a really great essay as well about the death of her mother and. Um, just, yeah, how she processes it. And, I mean, I know these topics sound like, you know, childbirth, death of your mother. They sound like sort of things that you feel a bit like, oh, God, I've read that a million times. But actually she brings something sort of new to it and she's a really lovely writer. So it was a really good read. Yeah, it's just a collection of essays. Okay. Well, I'm um, I'm a Rostodon enthusiast. <laughs> No, I mean, sorry, I feel like I've completely like greased the pole sorry, I, I of, your attempts to, <laughs> of yes. your attempts to talk about this, but I um I do love a um I do love a collection of essays. It's good. And but you know what I've balanced that worthy pursuit with a little bit of trash. Yeah. Don't be surprised to know. Oh, so this show on Netflix that everyone's been talking about, Indian Matchmaker. Have you oh, seen okay. anything or heard anything I've about it? I've never heard one word about it. What I I seem to have these blanks in my life where I think I'm kind of keeping up with things, then all of a sudden everyone will be like, oh, of course that thing. I'm like, no. So it's it's a woman who's a matchmaker um, in uh-huh. India. Again, does what it says on the tin. <laughs> exactly. And she's trying to um, sort of arrange, you know, partnerships for people. I.e. Uh, the dictionary definition the dictionary, of matchmaker. Exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, I just found it a bit depressing because firstly just – people's sort of the desperation some people have to be partnered up. Um, and so it's sort of has got that reek of it. But there's one particular girl named um, Apana who's she's clearly cast to be the sort of, I guess, villain of the piece because she's right. just really awful. But she's got this, she's really judgy, um, intolerant, rude, entitled, other than that, she's fabulous. <laughs> she's just horrible. So what's the jeopardy? Is it the, Will the matchmaker get them together? Will they, will think, the parents and I can, families I can tolerate them? two or three episodes of it because I just found it a bit, it just made me feel depressed. I think that the thing with her is that the sport in it, I guess, is watching her go through this succession of people that she's always, she's the princess in the pea, constantly looking for something wrong with them. So you're just mm. sort of obsessed by her horribleness. Um but there's also this note in her of she's got this sort of sense that you can see that she just really wants to be loved, 
she's her own worst enemy. She makes herself completely unlovable. Mm. But you have this sense that she's never going to be able to come around to that, to understanding that she needs to change her behaviour. Um, and so she's she's got a sort of real sadness about her. Mm. So I found it hard to watch. But people have found it really entertaining and been into it. It's been popular. I always wonder why people like that go into reality TV shows. I mean, like, yeah. if you watched any you'd be hyper-aware at the get-go of, well, why am I here? Which character am I? Because there's such a slate of characters, yeah. right, in those sorts of shows. You're like, oh, am I the jerk? Mm. Am I – because you you read from, you know, the human detritus of reality shows a lot of reflection about, oh, my God, you know, like they've just picked out all of these things of randomly of me making offhand remarks and they've edited them together so it looks like I'm a total bitch or whatever. Yeah. Um, I don't think I, I just – would find it hard to spit myself to that because I'd be con- constantly yeah. aware of like, well, where am I being pigeonholed here? Yeah, and I think it- probably the well-meaning <laughs> idiot. I imagine. <laughs> I think for the audiences, I mean, I guess it depends what you're into, but sometimes with reality shows, particularly anything to do with like people trying to find love, I find them a bit sad because people do get genuinely invested in a yeah. way that say you know like a survivor or a cooking show like people get invested in that sort of thing yeah but it's not quite the same as if you feel like you've exposed some vulnerabilities to somebody who's then yeah. picking out of 10 people and you're just one of 10 like, just, rem- oh my god remember when i was watching the bachelorette and there was yeah, I remember. jared who and i was really he was it was such a train crash coming because he was like so in love in this sort of stalkerish almost way with sophie monk and then i remember thinking oh i've just got to watch to the end to see when you know, Jared's going to get crushed. And then the episode where Jared gets crushed, oh, it was not entertaining even one bit. It was horrible. It was absolutely horrible because he was genuinely crushed. It wasn't like manufactured drama for the show. He was like properly crushed. And it Has wasn't anyone checked in on him? I, 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 I think he's been on some show. other reality dating shows. Oh, show. great. He's just like, that was fun. <laughs> Guess he wasn't that crushed. <laughs> it's like the televisual equivalent of eating wasabi. Yeah. Oh, fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't particularly, uh, yeah, Indian Matchmaker, it didn't do it for me, but I appreciate I'm in a minority. Did you ever watch that series called Unreal? No, but I've, what is it again? Can you remember what it is? So it's a, it's a, it's a kind of comedy series that's, it's, well, it's sort of comedy drama, I guess. Um, it's based on the set of a reality show and it's called like, I don't know, I can't remember. Heartbreak Hotel or something. Oh, I can't remember, but um, it is um, – so it's the behind-the-scenes story of – so the real drama is the producer and the camera crew and how they're trying to get this cast of reality show contestants to behave in a certain way. And mm. so it's quite – I loved it, actually. I really liked season one. Season two then went a bit weird right. and I stopped watching it, but um, season one is terrific. Yeah, it's good pickings, isn't it? Yeah, that, yeah, um, yeah. Kind of thing. And, yeah. Um, just before we depart entirely from my reading habits and the idea of sisters, um, I um, have read another novel in the last week, which um, is quite a new book called um, The Vanishing Half by Brick Bennett. Mm-hmm. And it's at the moment becoming a sort of absolutely huge New York Times bestseller. Um, Britt Bennett was the celebrated author of a book called The Mothers, um, 
which um, came out a couple of years ago. She came to the Writers' Festival in Sydney and was a great hit. This novel is kind of set in Louisiana in the 60s and 70s and it's the story and, and uh, it's the story of twin sisters who are born in this little town called Mallard who and the town is composed of very light-skinned African-Americans. So there's this kind of unspoken kind of we don't hang out with dark-skinned people kind of vibe to it. And these two twin daughters run away from their mother who's they're the only children she has um, and she doesn't have a husband anymore because he was lynched. So mm. um, it's quite full on. Um, the sisters then split up and um, one of them marries um, a very dark-skinned guy and then they divorce and she comes back to Mallard with her extremely dark-skinned daughter and that's one kind of um, – source of action and um, and controversy in the book. But the other is that the other daughter basically bunks off and passes herself off as a white woman elsewhere in America and is absolutely lost to the family but lives this sort of parallel life as a white woman. Mm. So it's all about kind of perception and um, identity and it is a really sticky, fascinating, interesting story particularly the sort of stuff that the so-called white sister gets up to in her kind of essentially gated white community. Mm, interesting. It's great. Very good. Um, I have been um, also watching some other trash called Money Heist. Oh, God. What's that? Oh, just killed the person who got me onto this because I've been, you know, I reckon I've watched 30 hours of it now. What? Um, it's a Spanish show. Um, and I've been watching a really bad version with English dubbing over the top of it instead of subtitles. Oh, Lee, are you all right? No, it's just, it's <laughs> pandemic viewing. It's just like mindless trash that doesn't really require any effort and so, but it keeps you sort of hooked into it. Um, so it's basically a group of robbers stage a heist on the Spanish mint and then, um, they sort of pull that off to a degree and then the is subsequent this like based seasons, on a true story or anything? No. <laughs> the subsequent season then is about staging a heist on the Royal Bank of Spain and so then okay. they do another heist. And so anyway, it's just it's incredibly bad. There's some terrible lines in it, which I don't know if it's to do with the translation or if it's actually the content. Like there's a scene where – Sounds like a cry for help, Sales. <laughs> There's a scene where the police chief goes into the police operations room mm. and he basically goes, it's up with when they're doing the heist on the bank, having already done the heist on the mint. And he's, and he, so he blundered up the one on the mint and let right. him get away with it. So he's like, you know, these people, they've caused me so much grief. I mean, I've had erectile dysfunction for two years. He just declares in front of the whole police know. operations room. No one really bats an eyelid. Everyone's just like, and there's so many lines like that that are just complete clangers, like, Really? You just said that in front of the whole? And then the robbers inside, basically everybody's having an affair with everybody else, like every combo of robbers sleeping with every other robber. Right. How they've got time during the heist to be doing this. Oh, they're actually shagging during the actual yeah, during heist. heist. Yeah, during the heist, yeah. Sure. Well, um, that's the way I roll, do. but I'm and holding up. And then they're breaking a- up and it's so there's getting a lot of tension in there and, you know, it's just not how you want a heist to be rolling, frankly. So it's an imperfectly run Spanish heist <laughs> in two parts and you're still watching it. Oh, it's just oh man. So I just can't dreadful. wait for Succession to come back. I could watch that absolute oh, crap out I'm of a new for series. Succession. Of that. I'm waiting for Line of Duty. Mm. Um, I'd be very happy to see a new season of The Bureau, but 
Sure. Yeah, unsurprising. Um, anyway. Listen, I also have been in the last week listening to a couple of podcasts that have a pleasing theme, so I thought I'd just group them together. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, listened to Michael Coots Trotter interviewed in the Drinkwise sponsored, I think, um, podcast series called Bounce Back or Bouncing Back. Mm-hmm. Rather professionally, I've forgotten exactly what it's called. Um, so Michael Coots Trotter is the head of the Justice Department in New South Wales. Uh, fun fact: he's married to Tanya Plibersek. Um, other fun fact: as he um, announced to his um, in an all staff email at the Justice Department when he took on the job, he was um, imprisoned as a much younger man for um, uh, heroin trafficking. He was caught with a big parcel of drugs that he had um, orchestrated to import. Into that would be the... absolutely unprecedented to have somebody running justice who yep. actually knows what it's like to be a prisoner. Right. Yep. And, I mean, look, this came out years and years ago when he was working for, I think, the New South Wales Treasurer. Like... I was the state political reporter at the time right. and he was the press secretary to the Michael Treasurer, Egan. Michael Egan, and he was, a, at what's handy is, a great guy and was an excellent press sec, one of the most well-liked people yep. there. And then one of the newspapers one day just outed him. Yeah. This junior staffer to Michael Egan has been arrested for heroin. And Michael Egan was awesome and really backed him in and said, this is somebody who did their time, it's done and dusted, he's a great person and a great um, asset to my staff and I back him in 100%. Because the vibe was like, well, shouldn't you be sacking this guy? And Egan really backed him in really well. But I felt terrible for Michael at the time because – he just didn't deserve to be outed like that. So what he's talking about in this interview, and like this podcast is all about, it's sort of I think largely directed towards men. It's like lots of men telling stories about how they've bounced back from various issues in their lives and dark times. And he talks just in a really engaging and emotionally intelligent way without any kind of, he doesn't refuse to answer any questions, he tells the whole story of what happened when he was 17 years old and how he got into this situation and um, what the justice process was like, what being in prison was like, um, how he kind of got out, what um, what saved him. And, I mean, the way he talks about Michael Egan and the attitude that he took to that news story happening is really touching and I think quite a, um, it's quite an inspirational portrait of a really – decent and courageous thing that a person without really a dog in the fight, like he could quite easily, I guess, have just let his press secretary go and taken the easy way out. But And he didn't, I think, know Michael all that well, um, but decided that it would be the wrong thing to do. So anyway, it's um, a really interesting study in how someone can be rehabilitated but also reconciled with their past. So he talks about how he talks to his own kids about it and um, how it's changed his perceptions of the justice system. It's a really, oh, really fascinating podcast. And, um, yeah, it's. Um, I feel like sometimes when people have gone through hard times um, in their lives, particularly with mental health and, um, and addiction and stuff like that, the aim is sort of so often to get over it and then just pretend it never happened. And the sad thing is I think as a result the people that you hear about are the people who have like ended in disaster rather than the stories of people who have um, deployed various strategies or experienced some luck or found mm. somebody that will help them and and come through it. So I'm always really, really just 
so grateful when people make the sacrifice of going back over that territory mm. in a um you know in a dispassionate way and explaining it because it's so valuable to other people who are trapped in some sort of dark place and just think, well, there's absolutely no way out yeah. for, for me. It can be helpful too, I think, to hear people talk about um, how that, you know, that they're on top of things but that they might still struggle. Like some yeah. of the alcoholics talk about, oh, I still quite often feel like I want to drink yeah. but I, I just don't. Like it's because I think sometimes if you're having trouble with something and somebody talks about how they've beaten it, it can yeah. be sort of depressing because you think, oh, well. I wouldn't I'm nowhere that. near that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so to hear people or people with depression when they say, oh, I still have episodes or whatever, yeah. um, I think that can be helpful to people to understand. It's not like a thing that you have this problem and you fix it and it's never a problem anymore. Yeah. It's often like an ongoing process. Yeah, it's like an extension of the sort of snap out of it doctrine, which is so annoying. Yeah. Um, but then in quick succession after that, um, my sister-in-law actually recommended a podcast to me, which I just found absolutely you know, the word humbling is mm -hmm. overused, but this podcast is the most extraordinary story. It's very quick. It's five, I think, 15-minute episodes. It's um, a BBC podcast. It's called The Punch. And it's the story of um, a guy called Jacob Dunn, who in 2011 was out. Um, he was a Southampton fan. He was in Nottingham after a cricket game got massively smashed with his friends, which was the way that they, you know, they one of the fun things about going to the cricket was going out and getting monstered afterwards and getting into a fight. Like that was a big part of how he had fun with his friends. He, one of his friends got into some sort of argument with some kid um, who turns out to be this guy called James Hodgkinson. Jacob just smashed, steps in, decks this guy, falls over, who then dies 11 days later in hospital, right? Like so, and he can't even remember it, you know, mm. and he's killed this guy. And he goes to prison and, um, you know, as you can imagine, um, life ruined. But the extraordinary thing that happens is that James, the dead boy's parents, decide to take an interest in Jacob, like, mm. They want to meet him. He doesn't want to meet them because he's kind of horrified Shame. and ashamed. But then um, they seek him out and they have this sort of restorative justice oh, session. Yeah. And then his parent, uh, James's parents, take an active interest in how this kid's going to rehabilitate himself. And so, and he does. I mean, his he rebuilds his life, um, gets married, has children, and so the podcast is essentially narrated by him present day talking about his life now and telling the story of how he oh. met James and then James's parents and I can't even talk about it without crying actually just the the interviews with um the mum are just the most I don't know like you just listen to her and think you are an extraordinary human being to have this amount of clarity and this amount of humanity and the perspective to add up like her her um her way of looking at it is like why should more than one life be ruined like mm. my life of my son's been ruined so like why should mm. why should a second yeah. life be? yeah and so it's almost like the hope for her son then translates itself into what this other boy could do with his life. Anyway, it's absolutely remarkable. and um, That sounds amazing. 
Our friend um, Julia Bird tweeted yesterday asking people um, if they could give her examples that they've seen of what she referred to as acts of grace. And um, I was interested in reading the responses that I thought people said things like, oh, yeah, I see it all the time but couldn't actually really articulate. Mm. I mean, that to me, what you've just described there, is an act of grace, which is what I, I would – I mean, I, I know it's people would have different definitions, but I think an act of grace is where – you extend forgiveness or an act of kindness to somebody that doesn't necessarily deserve it yeah. um, and that you don't have to um, do. Like, I think that's an incredible act of grace on the part of that family. Well, that's the ultimate test of forgiveness and grace, isn't it? Like mm. when it's unbelievably hard to give. Like that's mm. it's easy to forgive people who are doing all the right things or, you know, but, but to forgive someone when no one would ever expect you to yeah. is where it really becomes quite significant. And I think about, you know, I don't know, our lives are full of micro-conflicts now and, and macro-conflicts and there's conflict everywhere and, um, and, a, and I think frequently a perception that backing down is weakness in some mm. way or forgiveness is weakness, which I think is absolutely wrong because forgiveness is – not only brutal and hard but demanding in mm. a way that continuing um, your um, conflict setting may not be. Um, People think in society that um, correction is more important than forgiveness, I think, at the moment, where, mm. like, people like to judge others and point out their mistakes and pile on and all of that sort of stuff. But, you know, there's not that sort of... I don't know, um, forgiveness or benefit of the doubt or acts of grace. You don't see that very often. Nick Cave wrote a really interesting piece this week on that, you know, that um, newsletter thing that he does. Yeah, for yeah. It was about his attitude towards cancel culture and freedom of expression. And I, I won't attempt to paraphrase it because he explains it so amazingly well himself. Um, it's worth having a look at. I think that Red Hand Files, I just love. Yeah, right. I must subscribe to that because you've talked about it a couple of yeah, times and I still haven't got around so to it. Yeah, beautiful and lyrical and sometimes it's funny and sometimes it's sweet and I just always get something out of it. Do you find that you're, um, you are more invested in what he says because of your knowledge of the extreme terrain that he's covered? Um, in his personal life. Yeah. Because um, of the death of his son. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what drew me to him in the first place because I'm not particularly a huge fan of his music. Um, and I think I read a Red Hand file. Somebody might have sent one to me. Callum's a massive Nick Cave fan, mm. and so he's worked quite hard to get me into Nick Cave. So it might have even been Callum who sent it to me. So my gateway into Nick Cave has been through that mm. newsletter, and then that co has caused me to listen to a few um, albums, including with Callum's recommendation. Mm. I just think he has an incredible brain and an incredible way of expressing himself and a lot of wisdom, and I, he's got a sort of – sense of humour that I quite like as well. So I don't I don't love the sound of his singing voice. Hmm. And it's, it sounds all a bit dark for my taste. Dark? I don't think anyone's <laughs> ever said that about Nick Cave. <laughs> but I appreciate I appreciate it. I go, well that's it's not one hundred percent my thing, but I can still look at it and go, that's really good. I um I was just reminded of another great story of grace that I read during the week and it was um it was the written on the sort of occasion of the 75th anniversary of the Hiroshima bombing and whoa sorry anyway um it's about it was about a, a Japanese woman who was eight months old when the Hiroshima bomb was dropped and um she was sort of 
carried to safety by her parents as an infant. Her name's Coco Kondo, K-O-K-O Kondo. And um, the story is about how, as a young woman, she was flown to the US to be on this TV show. It was like the Today Show or something like that. And um, she was introduced without notice really on stage to um, Robert Lewis, who was the pilot who dropped that bomb. With no notice. No notice. Wow, that's yeah. pretty. And she was dirty a pool. she was a very young woman at the time. She may have even been a teenager. I can't remember. Um, it's in the story, but and she had her whole life been fueled by anger and rage about what had happened. Lived through the destruction. Grown up knowing of this terrible, terrible vengeance that had been wrought on her innocent city, um, and what had happened to her family and so on. And she said that. When she met this guy and saw how stricken he was as he talked about coming to terms with what he had done, that she kind of wandered across this TV set and just took his hand and then stayed in touch with him through the rest of his life. Mm. Anyway, it's an incredible story. And was he touched by that? Yeah, Yeah. hugely, yeah. yeah, I, I think I told you this the other night because it happened in an Uber on the way to meet you and Gwen. Mm. <clears throat> um, so I got in this Uber. I was only in it for like 10 minutes. Um, got chatting to the guy who was driving and we got talking about he had been driving a taxi 20 years ago and he hit a guy. It was bad weather. It was before – it was in Sydney near um, when Oxford Street used to have the sort of five ways near mm. Splendid Street. Um Rainy weather, um, a guy stepped in front of the cab and he hit him and he said, in, in my memory, like I saw his head hit, you know, the windscreen in front of me and there was blood on the windscreen and he, you know, rolled off and it sounded awful. He got out of the cab, blah, 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 blah. The ambulance came, the police took my details um, and, you know, they said, we'll, we'll be in touch. And then um, he said, I've waited and it was a couple of days and nobody had called me. And so then I called the police and I said, what happened to this guy? And they said, well, we're not able to, not allowed to tell you that, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, he said to me, it's always really haunted me because I wondered if I killed that guy. And I said to him, well, you definitely didn't. And he said, how do you know? And I said, well, because if he died, then the police would have rung you because you would have either been charged with manslaughter or because it was a death in a public place, it would have been the subject of a coronial inquest mm. at the very least. And so you would have had to give evidence at the inquest. Um, and he said, how do you know that? And I said, well, just because I've been a journalist for 25 years and I've done a lot of research into inquests for a book that I've written. And so I know that when there's a death in a public place like that, that it gets referred to the coroner if it's not a criminal case. So I can tell you that the guy must have been completely fine. Anyway, he went, oh, my God, I'm just... That's I'm so unbelievable. It was so relieved, and so he'd wow. been going around for twenty years thinking maybe maybe he killed somebody, um, and so then it was quite weird. Like he was like, oh, I feel like I was meant to drive for that ten minutes. So I was like, oh, I don't know. Anyway, it was quite strange. Wow. Did you yeah. feel like Mother Teresa having like soothed like, his fevered brow? <laughs> <laughs> you did not kill that guy. It's being brought in just for this ten minutes to set your spirit free. Um, That's always my experience with you. <laughs> right, should we rock and roll? I'm about to go and uh, meet one of my other, uh, one of the other degenerate parents from school to have uh, fried chicken and beers in the park before we go and get our kids. <laughs> wow. Just wow. Okay. <laughs> Not going to keep you from that. <laughs> you are full of surprises, my friend. <laughs> right, thanks, Tots. <laughs>